This is Cliff Dogs Podcasts, where Dr. Cliff Harvey chats with cool people doing interesting things in performance, business, health, and the creative arts. Jamie, Christian ah, Divis. Divis. How are you, sir? How are you? <laughs> Good, brother. Today, I'm well. well. Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still learning. I'm still learning all the, uh, the little words and trying to uh, get my head around it all. Eh? The hardest one for me is like the pronunciations, right? Because I've never heard them before, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah, so and I, um, I talked, to, I chatted about that with Bob, you know, Coco, Bob Lovell years ago. And um, he just said, look, we're, we're Kiwis. Or in your case, you know, you're a English Kiwi <laughs> hybrid. Um, but you know, the, the, the pronunciation, I think a lot of people think there's got to be some particular Romani pronunciation, but at the end of the day, we're, we're Kiwis and we pronounce things with a Kiwi accent or in your case, and you'll pronounce it with sort of an English slash Kiwi accent. And, and that's cool, you know, um, because if you look at any, any Romani dialect from anywhere in the world, it's, it's influenced by the country, country within which it lives. You know, so you've got Eastern European yeah. Roma who have a lot of loan words and borrow words from, you know, Romanian or Hungarian or whatever, and they obviously speak with a similar sort of accent. You know, most of our um, folky from back in the UK will either speak with an English or a Welsh accent or wherever they're from. And, you know, it's it's uh, I think that really helps to break down the barriers because, you know, a lot of us have been here for a long time as well. You know, on my dad's side, we're sort of sixth generation New Zealanders here. It wouldn't really make sense to try and mimic a, um, you know, a, an accent of a language that for, for many people have been yeah. lost anyway. So how would we kind of yeah. know? Um, and there's going to be a lot of, there are even subtle changes that we see here with the, um, the, the, the language here because a lot of people, you know, a lot of Romani people here in New Zealand they'll um, use a lot of loan words from Māori ah, for example mm. so you know I, I often won't say awa mm. like for yes or awa awa whatever however you want to pronounce it um, I'll just say I because that's how our family have always mm. sort of said it mm-hmm. you know so um, it, it's it's kind of cool to have that freedom because these things always evolve that's over a really time. really cool way of looking at it as well because I uh, obviously I come from a uh, hospitality chef background so perfection was everything right so it's quite, it's quite, yeah. I had to remind myself to talk to myself quite kindly when it comes to these things. I'm like, oh my God, it's like, this is a part of you. You should know more about it. And it's like, well, you know, look, you only found out when you were like 36. So let's just like be quite kind to yourself and be like, well, you know, there's, there's so much more to learn about it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, even in the culinary arts, I mean, you, you wouldn't only ever do things the way they were done two or 300 no, years ago. No. There's going to be evolution. There's going to be fusion. Um, you know, if, if we only looked at what was traditional, where where does that even exist? You know, would we not use tomatoes or potatoes mm. in Italian cuisine because they weren't there seven hundred years yeah, ago? Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Yeah, I always find that as a yeah. as a chef and as just like a general human being, I struggle with this, right? Because one part of me. Hold on, you're a well, human sometimes, being? Well, sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Um, 
but generally um, I always find that I go from these moments of like thinking like a chef where I'm like no but it has to be about tradition it has to be about this and it has to be about that but then the other part of me is always like well no you know why don't we challenge that you know like if you think about it you know fusion is happening all over the world in every kind of sense so for for instance you know I am you know an adopted you know British Romani kid adopted into a Jewish family my wife's Cantonese and grew up in New Zealand right so it's kind of like we've we have all these parts of ourselves right um so then when I think about yeah. it when we when we cook dinner at home you know like we we put some real cool stuff together when we cook dinner because she grew up in a Chinese restaurant right so we'll add elements that make her happy and elements that make me happy you know and then you end up with this fusion of your own food at home right and I think that's the same with like the Romani yeah. language that's the way I look at it because when I watched, I, I, I got quite a, into researching it and seeing where they're from and where they live all over the world and then looking at the Spanish influence to them and then looking at the, um, the Eastern European um, uh, side of them. It, it, was just, it, 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 was, it was crazy because when you look at the food that they all eat, because I, I mentioned that I'd love to do a dinner, right, uh, on the Facebook group. And then there was the problem because I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, so what is the one Romani, f there isn't one Romani food. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a lot to unpack here, you know, so uh, yeah. yeah, I've been looking at that still and trying to get my head around what I would do. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting coming from, because you, you'd be Romani yeah. child, right? So English Romani like, like me. Uh, and if I think about the food that my grandparents made, it was just, it was English fair. And often there, there were little things I think that were potentially peculiar to maybe the Romani way of doing things. It was often a lot simpler. Uh, they didn't use a lot of tomato and things like that, but on, on balance, it's just, it's just a lot of English food, you know, a lot of, a lot of stews, yeah. meat, dumplings, yeah. <laughs> you know, Yorkshire puds, all that kind of stuff. Um, because again, you know, pe people, it's really interesting. I think particularly with Romani Chal is that most of them are English first and foremost, and then mm, Romani. Mm. And I think that's an important pe thing for people to remember because otherwise a, a lot of those people who, you know, maybe serve the country are, are seen as mm. other, but if they've been there for 500 years, you know, and they served in the First World War as many, you know, m many of the uh, mounted infantry and whatnot in the First World War were Romani because they were yeah. good horse people. Uh, it sort of separates out and it's as if they're, they're different to, whereas in effect, it's a very interesting and distinct culture within the UK, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, don't have a background like yours exactly, but... On my dad's side, we're predominantly Irish and English, um, with a whole bunch of you know other sort of influences. On on my mum's side, we're English and English Romani, um, and so obviously all the various nuances that come in through that. Because you, you look at the your gene profile, and it's basically a map of Europe. Yeah. Because obviously, you know the Romani people came from India and spread through, so you're going to have all this influence from all over. So it, it's actually a pretty cool mm. thing, I reckon. You feel a little bit like a um, a kaleidoscope yeah, I, um, <laughs> when I was looking looking back at stuff and I was so shocked to find that like the, the origin of the people was was uh, 
from North India, right? And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Because mm. I actually thought, from what I was taught in school, was that, uh, you know, Rom- Romanese or gypsies or whatever you want to use that word, um, came from Egypt, right? Because of the slang from uh, Egyptian, right? <clears throat> Which was given to them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I always initially thought that it was an Egyptian thing, right? Like, because, yeah, it, it, it just had me for some reason. I don't know why, but that was something that was in my, my head for pretty much all of my school years and then into my, half into my adult life. But then looking back at it going, wow, what a beautiful culture. Like, what a beautiful culture of, like, artists and singers and songwriters and storytellers, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's quite beautiful, yeah and a lot of that you know particularly in recent times a lot of those people who were incredibly influential in Romani most people don't know you know most people wouldn't know that Pablo Picasso yeah was you know Iberian Calais and they wouldn't know that um Michael yeah Cain Michael Caine one of my favorites actually yeah Romani yeah yeah and um Django Reinhardt you know the probably the greatest one of the greatest jazz musicians oh, of all right. time was Manouche, uh, French, um, Romani, yeah. So a lot of very interesting and influential people. But yeah, Charlie yeah, Chaplin, yeah. you know, another good example. But probably like a lot of people in that era, they, they, they weren't particularly upfront about it. Because no, why would you exactly, <laughs> exactly. I was, uh, I was talking to one of my volunteers um, at work the other day, and uh, I don't know how we got into the conversation, but it was, ah, uh, oh, that was it. She, she asked me about, ah, oh, she was like, did you, did you work at Buckingham Palace? I was like, yeah, I did, like way back when I was 17. And I had a bit of a laugh about it. I was like, because initially, like, I don't know, being in hospitality as well in the UK, it's a little bit different, you know, especially if you're doing the higher end of things as well. You, you have to talk in a certain way uh, to come across that you know your stuff because no one wants that cheeky Cockney sounding lad or you know, originally when I was training, you know, they didn't like that sound. Even though I wasn't Cockney, I had this mishmash of accents from going over the UK when I was quite little. Well, different areas when I was in foster care, right? So until I settled into Kent, right? And then I tried to get the the Kentish twang. Um, But I I noticed that uh, when I was telling her a story, I was like, can you imagine if the Queen knew a gypsy was in in her uh, kitchens or serving her guests? I was like, what, imagine what would happen to the, to the world, like if they'd known. And there was this part of me that actually, when I found out like a couple of years back in like the, COVID, the first COVID lockdown, uh, where my birth father had passed away, I found out that we were Romani from a family member on my non-adopted side. So I was like, oh my gosh. Initially, I started off quite angry. I was like, oh man, like, I don't know how to carry this. You know, like I don't want to have to carry this. And the second part of me was when I started learning about the the culture, I ended up finding myself getting more attracted to it, going, oh, actually, this is beautiful. It is really beautiful. And then going from that, I ended up going into being really proud of it. But a a little part of me was getting really angry at the G word, right? I've I've used it twice now. And like, I know for some, it's quite hard, you know, like it's, it's a word that they don't like. And I found myself getting quite frustrated by it, right? And then I realized that, you know what, it's like the more and more I focus on trying to see that word removed, I feel like the more unhappy I'm getting. And I realized it's just like, 
put it aside for a little bit and then just be like, you know what, like, why don't I just be proud of the culture that I had in me and just read more about the good part of it, you know, like, because there's so much bad. There is so much bad. Yeah. And it just, it, I don't know, it just made me feel quite angry and upset that that was the case, even though it didn't happen to me. You can imagine for a lot of chefs in the UK or people in any industry, they don't want to say on their job sheet what their ethnicity is or what their culture is. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a really interesting arc, and I think a lot of people who either discover that they are part Romani or, or, or that they just become more open about it, um, it's a very interesting arc because I think a lot of people become quite active. It's like anything though, right? You become vegan, you're really active <laughs> about it. You, you discover something about yourself or you become more aware of it or you start to promote it more. You're going to really become active about certain things. And, you know, I think that a, a trap, it's not a trap, but there's a lot of different perspectives on the word mm. gypsy. And I, I know that I was similar, you know, I'd sort of say to people, you know what, that's kind of like the N word, <laughs> um, probably shouldn't use it kind of thing. But I really don't think it's, it's quite the same because I think it can be loaded and it certainly can be a pejorative. So I don't think it's a, a good thing for people to just throw around, especially if they're not mm. Romani. But on the other hand, um, it, it is very much a self-descriptor and not just a reclaimed one. I think it's a self-descriptor that Romani people in the UK in particular have used for a long time. Mm. You know, when, um, when my nan talk to me about it she'd say you know well we're descended from gypsies she, w she wouldn't use the term romany because that wasn't always a common yeah. term people did use that term and i know bob uh, lovell's been very much the same he said well it's, it's not actually a problem it's a problem when it's appropriated for exactly profit. and i really I, I really agree with that you know i think when when any culture is sort of stereotyped and caricatured you, you're kind of making yeah. fun of it or it, it's it's very flippant if even if it's not making fun of it it's very flippant and it ignores all the nuance of what's gone before you know with the holocaust and all the anti-gypsy laws and even the stuff going on yeah. in the uk now it's you know there's some pretty abhorrent shit going on so i think we need to be kind of pragmatic about that but one thing i wanted to talk to you about as well is it's interesting from our perspective right because if if i take a step back at the end of the day i'm a middle-aged white male yeah and, and I descend from Romani gypsies on my grandma's side. I've still had all the advantages that mm -hmm. being a middle-aged, you know, white male of, well, no, I, I haven't always been middle-aged, surprisingly. <laughs> I, was, I was also other ages at some time. But being a, a white male has afforded me a lot of advantage. And so I can't fall into that victim yeah, mindset. Yeah. Um, I can be active on behalf of our people, but it certainly hasn't been the case that I've been victimized overtly because of you know some blood i happen mm. to hold yeah i um i remember being very young and when i was first adopted i was five years old and fully aware of everything that was going on which was amazing um made it quite hard to have childhood connections though because i was talking a bit more openly about something that uh most kids wouldn't have talked about you know they were too busy pulling hair and playing football or you know, whatever it was at the time, Ninja Turtles, probably. Um, so yeah. I remember being at school and I remember there was this one kid called Billy and uh, his parents were just quite, well, they weren't well off. Let's just put it that way. 
Uh, and, you know, you could see it in his clothes and everything, you know. And the worst part about it was that the way the kids would bully him would be calling him a pikey, a gypsy, and a gypo, right? And for me, like, even yeah. though I think when I was younger, I kind of had a little bit of this thought towards that that felt weird because i was already being kind of like bullied for being adopted right and being openly proud about it and the same with being openly proud of being adopted into a jewish family we weren't um crazy on the whole jewish thing but like i loved it because i felt like i was being adopted into something new you know i felt like i was gaining all these things from being adopted you know so a family a forever home all these kind of things but then when i went to school with my peers the hardest part was hearing these words and like bullying, look, it happens, yeah. you know, but I've noticed in different eras, you know, like you look at the 20-year-olds the, the now, they're so much more supportive of each other and championing each other. Whereas back when I was growing up, it was all about trying to put each other down and calling each other stupid names, you know, and there was horrible words for everything, you know, like for instance, you know, you go to the corner store, it's not called a corner store, it's, you know, a racial derogatory term and then shop. You know, and the same for a Chinese restaurant. It's exactly yeah, yeah. the same. And you're like, how are we walking around every day saying these words and not offending people? You know, like I'd always question it. But then as I grew older, like I think I had to grow out of this phase where I didn't go back to being a five-year-old hearing that those words used in such a nasty way. So I think for me, it was having to sort of like look back and go, yeah, I have had it really lucky you know being in kitchens and being white you know um has been the best thing you know and even if i changed my accent up just slightly and made it sound a little bit more rounded and a bit more uh posh and improve my that vocabulary and stuff like that i can i can climb this ladder a lot easier than a lot of other people but then for me i had guilt i had guilt for the guys that i was working mm. on the line with because i knew that the the indian guy and the polish guy were actually better than me but I got promoted before them. You know, like... Right. Yeah. And I, I think the, the UK is a really interesting example of, of that stuff you're talking about because here in New Zealand, while we still have that to some degree, it's it's been a little bit more egalitarian. Mm. And I think that's just the nature of people coming across to make a new life. And of course, there's still going to be class stuff going on. But I think, you know, one of those things that, you know... And my mum was born in the uk right so they, they were immigrants on my dad's side we've been here a long time but um you can sort of see in the uk and having been back there that things traditionally were framed so much in mm -hmm. class and even more so i think traditionally than yeah. race but sometimes that overlapped because obviously um you know there were sort of there, there were the aristocracy and then there were landowners and then there were workers and sort of a, a line with that was sort of jewish people and then under that were <laughs> romani <laughs> and so you know often it did align with race to some degree but it wasn't in the same way that that the sort of u.s centric model that we now often see mostly was very much you know excuse the pun mm. black and white that wasn't so much the case and i think you know what things you're saying about accent and the way we say things and whatnot that was so much more of a thing in the in the mm. uk I remember watching a really cool doco and it had Michael Caine in it. And he was saying, you know, that in the generation previous to me, someone with my accent would not have been able to succeed yeah. like I did. 
it was because we had that big breakthrough in the sort of late 50s, 60s, where there was basically, it was almost like a cultural revolution, where suddenly you started seeing people with different accents, Liverpudlian accents or Cockney accents or whatever, starting to be able to, to be in the public eye. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because if you look at how long his career has gone on for, with the same accent, like I believe him and Sean Connery are in the same boat. They have played so many different roles, so many different ethnicities. Like Sean Connery played an Egyptian and he still sounded Scottish in Highlander. And he even makes a joke about it. That he's not Spanish, he's Egyptian. <clears throat> and I'm just like, I, I, I love the Nolan, the Nolan verse of uh, Batman movies purely because that relationship between Michael Caine's version of Alfred and uh, Christian Bale's version of being Batman. The the relationship there is just beautiful and, and, and perfectly written. But I think Michael Caine sells it so well just because of that accent that he has, because he sounds what people would call like a common accent. And he's in service, yeah. right? So it kind of like plays on all of those kind of things for me. But at the same time, like he he's basically the wingman, you know? Yeah. Hey, so, so you obviously came up working in kitchens and things. You became a renowned chef. Like, t- tell tell me a little bit about that journey because I think that's you know that's a super interesting yeah. thing in well, and of itself. I don't know. I'm still I'm still piecing it together actually. Like as I look back now, um, yeah, I, I started off in the UK and I went to culinary school uh, in Canterbury in Kent, and that, it was great. It was really really great. We had some great tutors. Um, and it was it was very traditional French style that we were trained. It was very militant, um, uh, and I needed that. I needed that because I think if I hadn't have just left high school and just gone into a job, I just don't think I would have done anything meaningful with my life. I think I would have been bored. So I think instead of becoming an artist like I wanted to be, I wanted to be a comic book artist and I wanted to draw. That's all I ever wanted to do. Um, I found myself getting into a trade because that's what my parents kind of wanted me to get into. And I was like, ah, okay, I'll try. But then I realized that I had no knowledge of food really when I got into kitchens because we grew up quite humble in food. It it wasn't, it was like a lot of tinned food, frozen food. So getting into a kitchen and the first thing I see is a chicken with like feathers on and guts inside. I was like, oh shit. I was like, what have I got myself in for? And I remember going home the first few nights and I was crying to my mum going, I just don't know if I can do this, it's too hard. But then I realised that being ADHD, like I had this great little moments where I could hyper-focus, right? So even though mm. I was a bit too fearful to get back into reading at that point because I'd had quite not a fun time at school, you know, I I, I don't think my teachers... I had enough support for being ADHD and for being dyslexic, but there wasn't a word for it. We weren't using that word. You know, it was kind of like, I'm just difficult. So I was like, great, I'm difficult and I can't stop. Right, great. So, you know, you you carry that with you, right? But then when I go into a kitchen, the great thing about it was you can be anyone you want to be. Um, And, you know, you can follow these mentors and then you can be a little bit like them. You can follow another mentor. You You can be a bit like them. So you take all these little parts of these great people who are dedicating their lives to food. So anyway, I went I went to culinary school and these guys really imprinted on me. And then I worked in a few pubs and I worked in a few um, restaurants in my hometown, did a bit of fine dining, um, moved. 
overseas for a bit, did some traveling, and then I moved to New Zealand. And I was quite young. I think I was probably like 25. Um, and I just, yeah, oh, wow. I think at the time it was just to get me out of this rut of like living in my hometown and not really achieving my dreams almost. I know it sounds a bit la-di-da, but yeah, I, I really had more aspirations than being stuck in my small town. And I love my small town and I love where it started me off, but I felt like I had more to explore. So coming to New Zealand, I just worked the cafe scene for a bit while I was getting my residency. And then um, I started working with catering companies and, and just trying to explore all the different styles and all the different um, ways food could be served. Um, Cause I always had this low self-esteem with um, thinking I wasn't very good. Uh, but the funny thing about that is that self-esteem of not feeling like I'm doing anything of worth or anything very good in my field because I was so attached to it was that um, it made me better all the time because I was constantly looking at it and going, oh, you know, oh, I could have done that better or if I just mm. focused a bit more here or if I had just done this. So I do realize it's part of my personality, um, but also I want people to love what I've cooked, but I use food as a way of expressing myself in that, um, to show that I love someone or that I really care for people in, in, in the restaurant or whatever it is, like it's food, it's always food. Um, and I figured out that that was my trauma and my healing was kitchens. Like I learned how to heal in kitchens hmm. because I met all these great male mentors that I needed, um, that I thought I needed in my life, even though my, my adopted father is the man, he's so amazing. Um, I just needed to find all these different male figures in my life because I felt like I was missing it not knowing my birth father who was the Romani side. So I now got to a point where I'm now, a, a, you know, an executive chef and a head chef and um, working for a charity and it really opened me up in a way that I realized how blocked I was as a person. I was very egotistical. <laughs> I was quite arrogant. But then no one really trains you um, in how to deal with media when it comes your way or getting a write-up or, you know, anything like that, I think. Mm. So that was the one thing that I was lacking was really an actual self-awareness of, um, of, of my behavior. Because the worse I was acting, the better I got praised because the better my food was and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is a terrible cycle to be in. And I always said to myself when I was younger, I don't want to be like one of those typical, typical chefs, you know, like... But now I cook with like yeah. using my emotions. I take all my emotions and I put it into food now and all my history and all my little bits. I'm trying to put a little bit of Romani food in there somehow, just a little surprise. Or I'll try and put a little bit of Jewish stuff in there, a little bit of British. And then my love for like Asian cuisine and Southeast Asian cuisine, like I throw that in there. So I think it's really made me the chef I am today now working where I do. Uh, and I'm probably the most comfortable and confident in my food now from that experience of working where I work. Is that 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 sort of ego arrogance type thing? Is, is that something that is to some degree ingrained by the industry, or is that a bit of a myth Ooh. that those of us looking out in from the outside I mean, see? I don't know. That's a really hard question to answer because some of the best chefs I know are the most humblest, and they don't sing enough about their praises, which I think they should. You know, so I'll do it for them. Yeah. But I think for me, I kind of grew up watching a lot of TV, cooking TV shows when I was younger. Because, I mean, I had friends, but again, like I liked my space. I liked being alone. 
it was just my thing and I loved drawing and just escaping, you know. I think I didn't deal with a lot of my younger early stuff then. So, uh, and all the bullying, I'd try and escape. So I'd escape into my world of drawing and art or I would escape into these cooking shows and imagine I was there essentially. So I think part of my yeah. personality is actually like, you know, watching uh, Martin Yan, he's this Cantonese cook that came to America and he would just show all these crazy like Cantonese style cooking. Is it yeah, Yang Kang Cook. Cook. Yeah, it was like my favorite show, right? Yeah. And I used to watch that and I was I like, I want to be just like him. So weird, right? And then I was obsessed with Bruce Lee as well, right? So I was obsessed with like Kung Fu movies and stuff. So I always uh, I always <laughs> found myself in this little... Um, my parents, my, my adopted parents also owned a video store. So this is probably why I have so much, uh, um, so many memories around movie-based things. I think it was just part of this this life anyway. So I always found that with the ego part, I feel like some of it was adopted and some of it was, I think, insecurity for me. It was insecurity of wanting to be liked yeah. and loved and all that kind of stuff. And then it gets out of control because I want all these people that don't mean anything to me to love me and not criticize me. But then the ones that I've got close, I'm always at work. So I never see them and I don't build those foundations. So then the ego gets bigger and bigger for me. But um, yeah, since since being married and since meeting my, my partner now, I've definitely calmed down a lot. She was a good... Um, yeah, the, the, good, the little bit of good that I needed to kind of remind me that I am a human as well, not just a chef. You know, there's a label that you put on yourself saying, I am a chef, right? You say that all the time and you become it, right? Um, and I think a lot yeah. of people don't know how to pull the human away from being the chef. It's quite a hard, quite a hard thing to do. Um, for people with my personality, I would say, because like, that's the one thing I'm good at, I believe. So that's what I push myself towards. It's such an insightful comment that, you know, because I think it transcends industries that we, we do those things to try and get the, mm -hmm. the appreciation or respect or, you know, I guess what we see is a proxy for love. It's not, it's not really. It? Uh, from all these people that we don't know. And that's particularly true yeah. nowadays, right? In the oh, social media totally. era, we're sort of clamoring for likes, follows, you know, we, we want, we don't want people to challenge our thoughts necessarily. We want them just to fall in line and, and, and love yeah. us. <laughs> but those people that are actually there within our sort of two meter circle, um, maybe because of that focus, we're not always giving them the, the time, the love, the appreciation that that mm -hmm. is real, you know, and that drives the, the real connections. But that's interesting with what you're doing now, because uh, we'll, we'll tell people a little about what you're doing with Everybody Eats, because this this concept absolutely fascinates me, bro. And I, this is what I really wanted to drill into today, because um, I'll give you a bit of backstory, right? I, I read the book Free, The Future of a Radical Price back in 2009 by Chris Anderson. And it sort of synthesized a lot of thoughts that I'd been having about... The transactional nature of what we do and i think the transactional nature of what we do is obviously necessary for some things but we, we take it into every element of life and i don't think it's necessarily helpful you know if we always do things with the expectation that we'll get mm. something back it, it's like everything falls into a market norm right and so i've played around with different models of you know pay what you can and um, service by koha and all these types of things but nothing's really been able to to gel because sometimes the economic reality of putting food on the table 
just doesn't work with that. So I'm really yeah. fascinated by, by this idea. So tell people a little bit about okay, everybody yeah. eats. So everybody eats is a pay as you feel um, restaurant and charity <clears throat> in which we we work with um, people like Kiwi Harvest uh, who bring our food to us, um, and then we and then we cook a three course menu in our restaurant. Um, we've got a couple of spots. So we've got one in Wellington, one in Onehonga, which is our flagship. Uh, and then we've got another one opening up very soon in Glen Innes. Um, so the idea behind it was that um, our founder, Nick, had done some research overseas um, and he had worked in certain um, similar organizations over there. And then he had worked for um, Kiwi Harvest as well. And I think the idea was that you want to open a restaurant where the playing field doesn't have any class, right? So we, we've, we've previously talked about class, right? Yeah. So the idea behind this is that anyone can sit down and eat together. And also the challenge for me would be to produce a menu from food that would have ended up in landfill, but at the same time, um, the menu changes daily. Like it changes daily due to the food that we get and then we write the menu daily and then all our staff are volunteers. So we have a prep crew um, in the kitchen with me, then we'll have a kitchen service team in the PM with me, and then we'll have a front house team with our front house manager. Uh, and that rolls over into Wellington exactly the same. Um, and what we wanted to do was make a dignified experience for people where um, it didn't feel like a soup kitchen. And now there's nothing wrong with soup kitchens, but um, if you imagine standing in a line you know, for food and it's, there's no service behind it, you know, like it's like, yeah, you're doing something good, but you're kind of just, you know, it's kind of like fast food, but not, there's no human connection. I think that's it. Right. So you still don't get rid of the social isolation of what these people are going through. And I think I was drawn to it purely because I relate to all these things, right? I relate to all these things, which I've never talked about. I never talked about it to any partners, apart from my wife now, um, about my beginnings. I, I'd spoken about being adopted, but I never went any further with it. I never spoke more about the, you know, the other side of me, you know, like all the stuff that I kept down as a man, as you do, um, until it gets to a point where you can't. And then this, with this job, I learned, I learned how to empathize with people instead of sympathize. And that was the biggest, biggest thing I, I, I've learned there um, through these people, because you sit down with someone yeah. who's in a place where you could have been when you were younger or whatever, but then you're sitting down and they're telling stories, you're telling stories, you're both sharing your story. And then you come together and realize over a meal that you're both just human beings, you know? And, you know, doing this act of service yeah. for people, um, can really humble you as a human as well. It can really take away that ego of being, I'm a chef, I'm a chef, I'm a chef. Now I like to think of myself as a coach for people when they come in the kitchen with me. And then when I go downstairs, you know, and see the, see the customers, you know, our regulars, um, I just love having a conversation with them, asking them about their day. And then they're, they're getting all infused about food. So I'm sharing my love of food with them because now, you know, they would have come in before and said, Oh, I hate broccoli. I'll never eat broccoli. And then we do something special to it, you know, put it in a mac and cheese or something. I don't know. Uh, and they love it, you know, and then they're talking about nuances of flavor and stuff like that. And they're getting really excited. It's almost like 
they're having the that restaurant moment where you go out to a restaurant and you remember everything about the dish you know and you see it on the chef's table and all this kind of stuff and it seems kind of like ugh, okay you know but then for them they're having that moment every time they come in because they feel like they're being they feel like they're special one and two they're getting that same level of service that they'd get in any other restaurant but not based on how they're dressed or anything like that yeah Exactly, and that's one of the things, I mean, aside from the fact that you guys are making it work, which, you know, is is fairly extraordinary because a lot of people mm. have tried and not been able yeah. to make it work right, but I think you're doing that because you're doing that in a really good way. I mean, we way. have an amazing team. But the thing we that really We have an amazing struck, team, you know, like so many people. Yeah, and I mean, you're, you're hitting it on several sort of levels, right? It's It's about reducing food waste which is critically yes. important people talk about all sorts of nuances with climate change and whatnot but if we throw away what is it 48 yeah. percent of usable food in the world like that's got to yeah. be a big impact right so it's sort of cutting across that but also obviously things like the cost of living crisis and the fact that you know we don't have a, a, a tr you know a minimum wage that meets living wage yeah. in new zealand you know all those sorts of things but the biggest element when I looked at your website and really became interested in what you guys were doing is that it's exactly what you said. It cuts across social strata. And if you're talking about a, a food bank or, you know, a mission or something, I think that the work they do is fantastic, but it still to some degree stigmatizes people. Mm. Because to get to that point where you're going there, you, you are then sort of outing yourself as being poor you know and you start to see yourself in that mindset it's not like you're around other people um and, and vice versa you know wealthy people often won't even see those people anyway mm -hmm. and then you start to get horrible shit happening where people say oh you know i saw a lineup outside the mission and a guy was on his phone like what's he doing there it's like you obviously don't understand <laughs> yeah. the new ex nuance and the complexity of yeah, poverty yeah. nowadays yeah. you know what do you think the guy shouldn't yeah. have a phone how's he going to get a job or live a normal <laughs> life whatever you know um so what what do you hear back from people about the experience? Because what you're really providing is not just food. You know, it's it's an experience of living. Yeah. Well. well, I think I think for me, I I like to see it as like everyone that comes through is a customer of the best restaurants I've worked in. That's how I see them all when they come through, and I just want them to feel that for me. And then our front house manager. She provides, she provides that warmth downstairs, you know, and gets to really know them, you know, on a personal level. She knows everything about them, which is really good. So they feel super special, you know. It's almost like, you know, they are part of our family. Um, and also they, they do come in and they volunteer as well because they want to give back to us. And I'm like, you don't have to give back to us. I was like, we're doing this because, you know, we love you guys, you know. like, But when they come in the kitchen, it's so much more special for them as well because they're, they're, they're working with a chef or they're working with our front house manager and they get this experience of that they are just on on that same level with us right um and that's all we wanted to provide really like i mean from my from my perspective but it's it's i think just knowing how the lack of dignity feels um on my side of things i know how to to try and just make them feel completely normal, you know, like, cause growing up being adopted, that was the thing that I always wanted was to feel normal. And I think, you know, even feeling like 
I was lost at times because even in the in, in the hospitality industry, there is a huge amount of men and women um, that are going through si social isolation. You know, like their connections aren't there because they spend all their time in a kitchen. So I relate to that as well. And I can only imagine what that must be like yeah. in life, right? Like, um, I like I like my space and I mm. like being alone, you know, like a lot of the time because it gives me time to think and process because uh, I have a lot of emotions, right? So I can only imagine what they would be feeling every day if they were on the street or struggling to put food on the table for their children, right? So when they come into our care, as I like call it, like our care, like I just feel like if we can make them forget the worries that they have just for a couple of hours, I feel like I've done my job. And like I never thought yeah. I'd think that way as a chef. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it it it's quite emotional as well actually, like when I think about it all the time. Like it it it's it, it's it's I've never had a job where I've felt like that. You know, where I actually genuinely care yeah. about everyone, you know, like initially it was quite hard for me in the first year because I took it all home. And then I had to ask my friend who's a nurse what she did when she worked on wards with people that died. You know, and it's not like these people are dying, but it's like, you know, I, I feel sad for them, you know, and she was like, well, you can empathize or sympathize or you can you can take it home and then it's going to eat you up, but then you're not going to be a very good service to them because then you're socially isolating yourself to yourself, right? So I put all the things into practice that we um, that we stand for, really, you know, like I try my best to come up with cool waste-free waste ideas or showing them how to use all the broccoli, you know, and they go, oh my God, I didn't realize that. I chucked that bit away. And I'm like, well, now yeah. you just saved yourself a dollar, you know, like, so, you know, yeah, so I try yeah, and do that for myself and for them. And then, yeah, just making everyone feel included. Yeah. So I don't really want to get into the weeds too much on this, but one thing that has been a challenge for a lot of people who have tried to adopt a similar sort of model, even if it's not, you know, a, a sort of more charitable thing like what you're doing, but allowing people to sort of pay what they want or pay what they can, you know, to try and sort of make the, the field a bit more level is it's sometimes from the consumer end there's a bit of confusion as to how that all works and you know you know what should i pay and so do do you notice any of that resistance like people who can afford to pay for the meal are they confused about how much they should pay for it or whether they should or not yeah that's a really common question it's a really common question that i get asked a lot and like the answer i always give people is like if you can afford to go out to a restaurant where was the last restaurant you went to and how much did you pay? Right. And, and generally right, yeah. that helps them in a sense as well. Cause they go, Oh, well I went to this place and I spent, you know, $80 on da 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 da. I was like, well, I'm not asking you for $80, but if you liked it, you know, if you spent $10 per, per um, dish, you know, um, entree, main or dessert, that's 30 bucks. That 30 bucks is now just fed, you know, at least oof, probably a, probably another 30, 35 people. So you even just putting $10 wow. in, you've already paid it forward. So it's not about the money that you do give. It's about what you can give. Um, and at the end of yeah. the day, that's also bringing in a dignified experience because for our people who can't give, you know, a note value, they'll give a gold coin donation to the cohort in. Um, and if they're not giving, you know, that there, sometimes 
they may not be able to pay for a, a week or whatever, but then they'll come back and they're so proud that they come in with a, a $5 note that they're able to to put that in the tin for them. So that there, you know, yeah. is enough to kind of like explain to people who can afford to pay, you know, like the pride of them being able to pay for a meal is more than the value of what's going in the tin or going on the, on the, on the donation yeah. uh, thing. But, uh, Again, as well, like with, with a lot of people who do come through, you know, um, we just want them to pay as they feel. Because, again, you know, it's their way of rating it if they want to, you know, like, you know, we have good days and we have bad days like any kitchen, you know, and some days we've just got onions and tomatoes and you're like, oh, no, what do you do with just onions and tomatoes? I've got three <laughs> courses to do. Um, so they appreciate that as well, you know, so yeah, <laughs> so two, three ways. ways. Um <laughs> But uh, there's a lot of on toast at the moment. Um, but um, yeah, I feel like if, if people can pay what they believe it's worth or, you know, if they can even just think of putting themselves in the position of someone who wouldn't be able to pay for a meal, like then maybe that can make their decision easier for how much they would pay. Yeah. I noticed that uh, on the FAQs on your website, it was really cool to sort of see that idea of it's not so much about what you're paying it's that by you contributing you're helping to support those other people who maybe can't pay this week or can't pay as much or whatever and so it is it feels very collegial in that respect which i think is you know a part of the whole thing again of cutting through social strata yeah yeah and it's nice right because people feel proud one when they can pay and two you know people who have donated to a charity get something back of it you know like they feel like they've given some good you know or or done some good and um i i feel the same you know like when i can use my skills um you know because i think they're more valuable than me giving a dollar value on something a lot of the time because like i feel like if i could give give my skills to people and donate my time i feel like that's more valuable um so that's why i initially started volunteering there like four years ago um because I had a business, um, wasn't very happy. Like I had everything I wanted, but I wasn't very happy, right? So I was kind of like, how do I find happiness you know, like for myself? And I was overworked and all that kind of stuff. And I found going into a kitchen where everyone's a volunteer um, and everyone's just there on the same playing level as a, as, as a cook or a prep chef or whatever, it was amazing to see like how many talented people out there, you know, and they're lawyers or they're this or they're that, you know, and they're, they're donating their time. And that, that changed my mind and, and changed my mindset so much that I was like, oh man, like I could do this for real. Like I'd love to do this for real, you know, um, because the, there's no other job you can go to where you're, you're able to connect with people as well as I think we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. food, right? Pe- people think about food as fuel, but food is our biggest entertainment. It's our biggest social it is. activity. Yeah, I just watched this documentary last night. Well, halfway through it, it's called Breaking Bread. It's really, really interesting about oh, yeah. this uh, Master Chef winner in Israel, and uh, she decided to start up this festival. Um, I can't remember the name of the festival now. Um, but the idea was to show that, um, uh, what's the best way to put this? Um, that um, 
she had Jewish chefs and Arab Muslim chefs working together to create old dishes from certain areas in um, Jerusalem uh, about le Levitine wow. food, as she e explains it. And the idea is that some of these people yeah. um, who have traveled all over, like the Muslim side, the Jewish side, um, they've not even tried these dishes from these certain little areas, right? Purely because of like the religion that blocks them or, you know, the walls that block them. But it was so amazing that, again, yeah. she mentioned like breaking bread um, is a way of bringing people together and food brings people together. And again, it goes to that argument of food where tradition versus what the fusion of food is now, like naming of food. So there's a salad called Arabic salad or um, it's either Ara Arabic salad or Israeli salad. It's exactly the same salad, but they found with doing this yeah. event that they couldn't call it one thing or the other because someone would get offended. But it's like, how can you get offended by a salad? You know, like it's it's so weird, right? Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> I, I just love watching this doco purely because it kind of like, I, I took some of the the things to work with me as I, I was thinking and I was just sitting there and I put on a bit of a menu that kind of like reflected a bit of like Levantine food. You know, we went sort of Moroccan, North African and um, yeah, I like to tell the stories when I go to work, you know, to the volunteers of why why that's on the menu tonight. And that was one of the reasons why that is a is. But it, it kind of tied me back into the Jewish uh, into the the the, the Romani Gypsy thing as well because it's like again with the word, the tradition, and you know how words are more powerful um, to some people, and then other people can be like, well, you know, mm -hmm. there's you know a Jewish chef and an Arab chef. Uh, and an Israeli chef together, working together, and they don't have any issues. You know, like, and they're all talking about the same thing, yeah. putting something on a plate that brings people together. And uh, I, I know for me, like, my first question I ask a lot of my volunteers when they come into the kitchen, into the kitchen, is, uh, it's, uh, I just come up to them and I go, "What's your favourite food? And if it was made illegal, what would you go to prison for? And what's the memory associated?" And a lot of people, it stuns them. They go, oh, oh, my God. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll give you a minute. And then some people have an answer, you know, straight off the bat, you know. And it's always like something about the culture that they grew up in or something to do with their nan or their mother or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and some people will say, oh, my, this chicken soup, it's not much, but, you know, there's the memory. The memory comes out, right? Yeah. So it was humble, but then you see this flow of memories coming out and you see the big smile on their face. Like it's... Yeah. It's it's true about food how it brings people together. Absolutely, I, I think that as soon as you said that, I thought about it. it. Wouldn't necessarily be my favorite food, but the thing I thought about was just an old style English brown yep. stew. You know, it's it's very basic. It's very you know stodgy. You chuck a couple of dumplings in there and stuff. But that's what my grandma used to make, and that's what you know because we spent yeah. a lot of time with her. It's what we used to eat, you know, and it's just so um, incredibly comforting to to eat that and my, my partner often makes a stew very similar to that now because she's kind of been a, a little bit influenced by, by me and to sort of simplify it down because she's a really good cook um but you know when she just when she makes it it's just like being back at grandma's house nice. and it's um yeah it's just so yeah yeah <laughs> i must admit like um during one of the lockdowns me and my partner were trying to find uh we were just trying to find ways of entertaining ourselves right 
And uh, I'm very creative, obviously, and a bit impulsive, having ADHD. So uh, I make it quite fun. So I get really involved in it, right? So one one little thing we did was um, I, I bought back a tin of corned beef from um, from work. And I was like, look at this, eh? I was like, what what yeah. does this say to you when I showed it to her? Because we're from around the same era. And uh, she's like, oh, my God, fried corned beef on noodles. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And then I was like... Um, I was like, my nan used to make, my, my nan on my dad's side, who was Jewish, we used to make this really nice sandwich, which I always tell people wasn't really a child-friendly sandwich because it had mustard, horseradish, raw onions, uh, lots of white pepper yeah. and corned beef. But it was delicious. And like yeah. the fire that goes up your nose from each bite, you're like, oh, God, pepper. And, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're just sitting there like that, trying to enjoy the sandwich. But it is, it's just one of those memories. So we, we had this night where we, um, I cooked her that sandwich well, I made her that sandwich. And then the next day she decided that she was going to make me something her mother made with corned beef, which was this omelette. And it's like a very Cantonese style omelette, but with corned beef in it. And then um, sometimes you can even have it in a sandwich, like those kind of like um, Japanese egg. So she, she kind of did a fusion of her own. She oh, made yeah, like yeah. a Japanese egg sandwich, but then she did it with a, a corned beef rolled omelette in there. And it was delicious. But it's amazing how... We both had such fond memories of a tinned product, right? And then associated those memories yeah. from there. So it was a really good, fun, fun time to play around with it. Because I like to cook Cantonese, like really home-style Cantonese food for my partner. Because it makes her feel, I don't know, just like homey and, you know, warm. And then for me, like she'll always cook me yeah. something. Like I think one day she asked me what I wanted for dinner. And just jokingly, I said, I want lamachan. Like it's this Turkish, this Turkish dish. And uh, like, that's me being a chef, right? But then she full on went out <laughs> and did it. Like, so she made these flatbreads, she minced up this lamb and then she put like all the spices and stuff in it. And then you spread this mint stuff over uh, like a nani looking kind of like flatbread and then baked it off. And then we had that for dinner. I was like, yeah. geez, I was like, I haven't tasted this since like being in Turkey when I was like 19. Like this is insane. And it was like, Wow. Just having fun with food and memories, I think, can be such a great way to grow as a couple as well. Like, because that's where we, like, we're a great tag team in the kitchen when we're at home. I love it. Like, because she bosses me around and I really like it. <laughs> I actually really yeah. like being told what to do when, when she's bossing me around in the kitchen. It's quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that about um, corned beef because we used to eat a very similar sandwich at my nan's place you know, corned beef and hot English mustard and all that kind of stuff. And um, I would go to school when I was a little kid and, you know, I, I'd have corned beef sandwiches and the Māori and Pacifica kids would be like, you eat corned beef? Like, I thought that yeah, was just yeah, what yeah. we did. Um, but I think it's it's very much a, a working yeah. class Well, thing. I noticed that when I, um, the first cafe I ever worked in over here, the chef was from Yorkshire and, there were kiwi, and it was a Kiwi-run cafe pretty much. Um, and they had corned beef hash on the menu. And I was like, oh, gross. Like, how do you put that in a potato and then fry it? Because it'd be all wet and mushy. And the only corned beef I ever knew was from a can, right? So I've been a chef by this time for probably 10 years and didn't even know that there was a different yeah. form of corned beef other than in a tin, right? So I felt quite embarrassed. And it was yeah, silver yeah. Side, right? And he was showing me, like, what they yeah, do, yeah. like boiling it up. And we used to do that at work. You know, we used to boil it, refresh it and then slice it down and then dice it down and put it through these potato cakes. But it was just that moment of like, one of our um, one of our staff um, 
was uh, from the islands. I think he was from Fiji, and uh, he basically was like, "Ah, oh, that's not that's not corned beef." And I was like, "I know, right? Like the best corned beef comes out of a tin." And me and him were just like, and then everyone looked at us because <laughs> like I'm a white guy, he's a Fijian guy, and like just everyone in the cafe was pretty much predominantly white anyway and they're just looking at us like that like oh tin corned beef i was like don't knock it don't knock it because it is just a dream like um and i still feel that way even though i've eaten like really really fancy food all over the world and stuff like i still think that like you can't take away how clever corned beef was (laughs) yeah and i i think that that's a really interesting element of food is that you know that there's people will look down on whatever it is, corned beef, or it might be a burger or a hot mm. dog or something. But then they're, they're all their own cuisine, <laughs> you know? And even sometimes if it's not a gourmet hot dog or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it can still yeah. be delicious. And I, I don't see why people would want to cut themselves off from that. It's not like that means you're not going to be able to go and enjoy, you know, a silver service fine dining meal. You're going to enjoy that, yeah. obviously. But you can also enjoy a burger or some fried chicken or some corned beef or whatever it happens to be. Because, hey, why not? It's all just a different experience. And obviously when there's, as we've been discussing, there's more than just food involved. There's your, you know, your own personal history and your connection. And, a, but, you know, food and smell, like taste and smell is so evocative in terms of that neurophysiology. It immediately brings to mind uh, memories without you even realizing mm. it. No, I totally agree. You know, like the, the, the smell of tobacco where it just reminds me immediately of my uncle yeah, growing up. Yeah, yeah, You know, not that I smoke or I'm in favor of, you know, smoking or whatever, but it's just that that smell is just immediately, I think, about being at his house up in Helensville. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where you can't, you yeah, can't stop it. I, I think the hardest thing for me recently was that um, after having COVID, I ended up losing my sense of smell and taste for a bit. And uh, for a while, it kept on oh, coming no. and going. And I get one or the other. And then for a yeah. while, I kept on smelling sour milk for no reason. So I was going into the fridge, like wanting to chuck everything away. <laughs> it was terrible. But um, <laughs> I've since got it back, but it keeps coming back in little waves at the moment. So it's like it comes back and, and goes and then my sense of smell will get really, really strong again. And then it'll go back to being a bit weird. So I'm hoping I'm hoping by the end of the year that it'll probably just settle down. It's, it's, it's been very odd. It's been very odd. Yeah, Hopefully. but um, I'll send you some info after afterwards. Oh, nice. I um I do a lot of work in in the COVID space and particularly in yeah. COVID. And there 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 are some things in the research which have got some pretty compelling results for getting um or for helping to get that taste and oh, smell amazing. Yeah, but it's 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 a funky it's a funky man, virus. I didn't. Man. I was terrified of it as well. You know, because we help the vulnerable in one sense, and we actually have like. Uh, people that come through that are retired as well, um, you know, and they, they would be classified as vulnerable in the COVID sense, right? Um, so doing our job, yeah. uh, everybody eats during that time was incredibly stressful, uh, incredibly stressful. I, I found myself not being able to breathe properly in the masks because the masks were getting thicker and thicker, and we've got a lot of stairs, and then it's a hot kitchen as well, right? So it's it's it was quite hard, eh? to try and put together just doing a normal menu and doing everything kind of normally when you're restricting. Well, I felt quite restricted. Like I felt like I was wheezing and I don't have asthma or anything like that. But um, after getting COVID, yeah. I didn't think I had it. 
and then it turned into just like oh my god this is horrendous it was horrible like i'm glad i had it i'm glad it's gone but uh it's amazing how long it just lingers for in certain little areas yeah we um we managed to avoid it we think anyway we think we may have got it in the the very first wave but because no one was really testing at that time we're not sure it could have just been a cold or a yeah. flu or something but uh, we managed to avoid it all through the pandemic until it was three weeks ago no. the first live gig i'd done so the first live speaking gig i'd done in two years because obviously everything's been cancelled i went out and i was speaking at a medical conference about nutrition and long covid oh, and i caught covid yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i bought that home gave it to uh, my partner gave it to our little baby oh. and um a couple of days later i was just laid up but yeah same same thing i, I was really knocked around for about a week uh, another week of feeling terrible and then this is the third week and i'm still mm. not right you know still you know and I'm, I'm doing all the things that one would do based on the evidence to sort of avoid long covid and to you know keep keep yourself healthy and whatnot obviously it's what i do yeah, for, yeah. for a living um but yeah it's a funky little virus and I, I think the the worrying thing is that there's a really high rate of long covid so about 35 percent of people who get covid have long covid symptoms and because now about 4 million Kiwis have had COVID, you know, we're looking at over a million people are probably walking around with post-viral effects. And there's, there's going to be a big effect on mm. the economy from that. Yeah. Um, and for some of those people, the, the effects are, are, are pretty bad too, pretty nasty. You know, they get myocarditis and um, heart irregularities and all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a funky little beast. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I think my main <laughs> worry was my partner because she, uh, she had asthma as a child and uh and sort of you know she gets right. she's got a bit of a, a wheeze every now and again you know when she's around dust and stuff like that so the the one thing i didn't want to do was bring it home uh, and i bought it home um <laughs> but it was funny because it it didn't get to me it didn't get to me and i think it, it it got to me two years yeah yeah after two years really like so i didn't get it straight away i avoided it for so long and I was so proud. And it was just that one week of bragging that I haven't caught COVID. I caught COVID. It's weird, right? It's weird. I must have attracted it somehow. But um, yeah, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, eh? Like, I mean, I've had a really nasty flu before and I've had a really bad chest infections as a kid. And um, I was worried that that was going to affect me because I get quite chesty every every like year when it gets to this kind of weird weather before it's coming into Christmas, when it gets wet and damp. Yeah. But... It was, yeah, yuck. Like, <laughs> um, and to try and cook post-COVID, um, like, and I mean, having ADHD, I go through bouts of having like super high energy and sometimes I go sort of low energy, but I can still kind of fake it to make it. I've done it most of my life. But this was different. The lethargy yeah. I felt from post-COVID has been crazy. I feel like I'm like 90 some days and it's just like walking upstairs or something it is crazy yeah it has a, i mean i'm gonna get a little bit nerdy here but it has a really big effect on our like cellular energy dynamics because the virus co-opts a lot of the stuff we need um well it's basically creating energy within our cells right because viruses are not living per se because they don't create their own or produce their own energy so they're relying on what's in the cell so they deplete a lot of that energy and they deplete the things that we need to then create energy. So a lot of the things that we would associate with reducing fatigue are really mm. depleted in the body. 
um, and a lot of people are a little bit low on those things anyway so this this is where there's probably a bit of a role for you know some nutrient support and you know making sure that people mm. are eating well um, which I've been harping on about since the beginning of the pandemic and us doing a better job of providing better health messaging it sort of segues into what you're doing because you know you're providing good quality food to people that often mm. aren't getting that so yeah well one other thing I just wanted to finish off with because I know you're um you're a busy man is one thing that struck me was when you mentioned that you're you sort of see yourself as more of a coach and the the thing that sprung to mind for me when you said that was because you're providing that experience and people are seeing they're not just being given like a package of food or something they're, they're actually experiencing a meal and they're seeing how food that would otherwise go to waste can be a really delicious meal they're learning through eating and seeing how they can potentially lever things that would otherwise go to waste like you were saying before with like a broccoli stalk or whatever um that's that's a skill i think that a lot of people don't necessarily have nowadays through no fault of their own um but you know growing up i remember going up to my my nan's place in the kaipara and you know she she was had a a fairly minimalist existence by um, virtue of being very working class and she would just whip off into the garden and and pull out you know all sorts of things nasturtium and um puha and you know south thistle and coltsfoot and hawksfoot and dandelion and all that kind of stuff to make up a salad because if that's all you got it's all you got um but there was sort of that that level of existence and resilience that perhaps people don't have as much nowadays and again it's no fault of their own because a lot of people will then criticize people who are poorer and say well if only they could budget better if only they could make ends meet but it's like but you don't do that you don't no. have that skill so you're expecting other people to do it but yeah but you don't yeah it's funny you know? right it's so. really really funny to see it on the other you know there was a there was a story i read recently uh i think it was a chef telling a story about how um he grew up um with his nan making no he took his nan to a, a fancy restaurant because uh, he's he's kind of like made it you know like third generation you know his parents had immigrants and that kind of thing and his grandparents were immigrants sorry his grandparents were immigrants and his parents were first gen and he's second third gen um and basically he managed to work out of it right he managed to work out of being working class so he takes his nan to this really fancy restaurant and on the menu is this huge description of this uh, dish being dandelion salad and she just started laughing right so she's laughing about this dandelion salad <laughs> and then uh, he's like why are you laughing she goes i can't believe you know you're gonna pay like you know say 96 dollars for this salad when i used to have to eat this because we didn't have any money you know so how the times and trends yeah, yeah, change yeah. in food you know like peasant food is now what people all want to eat you know being caviar and lobsters right that was once peasant food but now everyone seems to think that it's a sign of opulence and then the price yeah, goes yeah. up or whatever happens in the industry i don't know you know but i think that's where trends can be um dangerous in a sense um you know food trends can be a bit dangerous because if you look at like the ecosystem of the people that are growing the food they can no longer eat the food that they grew up with because they're producing it for specific diets. You know, like, what, what, no, I wouldn't say diets. I'd say it was like trendy diets, not like diets that are based around any like scientific nutrition. 
I think it's the diets that have just mm. been fatted. Well, quinoa yeah, is an yeah. example of that, right? Like the price of quinoa went through the roof, and a lot of people who subsist on that in um, like places like Bolivia, they, yeah. they can't afford it anymore. And those that do produce it, they sell it all, um, and then get, you know, cheaper, poorer quality foods to to eat rather than eating the quinoa because yeah. they'd rather sell it. So yeah, it's a, yeah, it's I an interesting one. We quite often go down the we quite often go down to the markets here in Parnell, and they they often have these little bundles oh, yeah. of first lane, and it's like super expensive, and we constantly pull it out of our drive because there's just so much of it growing all over the footpath and all this kind of stuff. And I'll I'll quite often wash it off and use a bit of it, but there's just too much to use. Yeah. and it's it's delicious. Yeah, right? first lane's fantastic, and it's in a lot of you know a lot of Greek cuisine and um, yeah, it's amazing cuisine. what would yeah. grow. You know, like. I remember seeing that trend of like all the sea lettuces being used, you know, and all the the um, succulents. And the only thing that made yeah. me sort of like think of, it, think of it as a bit silly in a sense, like they do taste amazing, right? But I remember sitting there going, my nan used to grow those on a windowsill and never once did I think about eating them. Yeah. <laughs> and now yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm at a fancy restaurant paying for it. You know, like it's just... <laughs> It's like something that's so cheap and so, I don't know, it just seems so strange, right? Like to look at weeds in a, in a certain way. But again, if you go back to all the way back to when um, the Romani were traveling, right? You can imagine that the food there would be really interesting because if you're going down a countryside or whatever they're doing, you know, wherever they're traveling from and to, I can imagine how yeah. exciting the food would have got as they go along, you know, like from spices to, I mean, I don't know what the English countryside has. I mean, I know there's a lot of greenery and a lot of weeds and berries and, you know, wild rabbits and God knows what, but imagine doing that and cooking outside. That'd be so much, so much fun and a good connection to the earth again. Right. Yeah. My understanding is a lot of that food was, um, you know, a lot of meat, a lot of bread and then, things that could just be foraged along the way so like you say berries and weeds and all that kind of stuff um i'll leave you with one little story we we used to live down on the water and it was sort of a stormy sort of area and um the the water would often so the sea would often wash up into the garden and i came home one day and our flatmates were pulling out um hope they don't listen to this they were pulling out all the all this all these weeds out of the garden to plant lettuces and i was just thinking there's no way a lettuce is going to grow here it's like the saltiest environment but all the weeds they'd pulled out were basically yeah. puha right it was just all the south thistle and so i um saved as much as i could and made a whole bunch of ruko which is um it's like puha cooked oh, up with coconut cream yeah it's delicious super simple like really nutritious um and obviously puha just grows anywhere so it was just funny that we so often do that we we take things away that grow really easily and then try and force the land to produce something that we're more yeah um, familiar with it makes sense because obviously if you're familiar with it you you know but if people just uh, understood a little bit more about what grew in a particular spot in the garden or whatever um, it would make life so much easier because you don't need to worry so much about fertilizers and pesticides and, you know, mm. working the ground too much. You just take what's there. Yeah. I feel like uh, going back to seasonal eating, and I've said that since probably being about 17 in kitchens, I worked for one chef and he was so strict about it. 
like he told us off for getting strawberries in on a fruit platter. Like literally he just lost it because it was winter and they're from Spain or whatever. I mean, yes, they're tasty and it's really good to explore different foods, but I feel like the best way to explore foods, and I mean, now we can kind of do it, is by travel um, because you really get to know why it, why it tastes so good where it is, essentially. And I feel yeah. like a lot of food that's exported, you know, it's weird that I've had more of the new, the top New Zealand meat in Hong Kong than I did in New Zealand, you know, like, but yeah, yeah. that's, that's another story for another day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, we'll finish off with where to now for everybody eats. Cause it's obviously, it's, a, it's an amazing concept. I know that you guys have expanded quite a lot you're in Auckland and Wellington now are you um, planning further expansion or what yeah so we're looking at um GI Gleninus being our next space up this way um and then um the guys down in Wellington are doing some great events um they just come off you know welly on a plate and now they're looking into doing these brunches and we just did a big gala uh dinner to raise some some money and some capital to help with um the the Gleninus spot um we've, we're hiring a few more chefs so we've got a few more chefs coming through which is great so we're increasing the family um so yeah it's just just growing nice and i mean it, it was hard during covid because i mean we all had these great plans to keep building but obviously we couldn't uh so you know that knocked the the window out of wind out of our sails but then we came back stronger and we're like no we need to be in a few more locations to help more communities and more people really um, but that will continue to 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 grow, um, and I'm looking forward awesome. to watching it grow. Like I'm I'm actually finishing up in December actually to have a little sabbatical, have a little bit of a break because it's been about three and a half years for me, and I want to take my uh, my partner over to the UK, meet the folks, and uh, just see where I'm from really. Yeah. So yeah, taking time out of the kitchen for a bit for me is going to be great, and uh, we're leaving it in really good hands of some good chefs, which I'm really happy about. Um, but the great thing is I get to watch it from overseas and see it still grow, um, which is just an amazing feeling. It's actually quite a, it's, it's, I'm not heartbroken, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm going to miss it so much. But then I realize that there's a part of me that needs to have some time away from a kitchen, like to just get back to like family life a little bit, you know, because it's been two, you know, two, three years and I haven't seen my parents in five, I believe. And, you know, I've got, a, I've got an adopted family of like, there's about eight of us all up. And uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to catch up on, you know, like there's only so much you can do over FaceTime. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's going to be. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess it gives, gives other people an opportunity to be in that leadership role. Yeah. And, and I want to see like, um, I want to see our, our chefs like take on what we've just built and make it even better, you know, like come in with like extra yeah. steam and just you know, put that extra cherry on top, you know? Yeah. So where can people find out more online about... Well, um, it's www.everybodyeats.nz. Um, all our information's on there. Um, there's heaps of videos on YouTube. Um, and we share a lot on our Instagram as well, which is at Everybody Eats. Um, and again, we share a lot of... Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? The quantities of food as well that we rescue. We pop up on our little tiles on there as well. So you can get, um, get involved there. But also if you go onto our website, you can, um, sign up and volunteer, um, which is 
obviously we always want volunteers um if you can if you can volunteer as well you can actually select the days and the hours and the shifts that you would want to do and for a lot of people what we're we're seeing is a lot of people are doing one shift on the dishwasher one shift in the kitchen one shift out front and then changing it up so for them for their monotony of their nine to five job where they're bored they come in and they get that like real energy buzz from being in a restaurant as well so um yeah we love we love getting more volunteers the more the merrier really that, that might encourage someone to get into the yeah um as well. we we love having young chefs come through as well because it's quite a cool experience for them to see um how to reduce their waste and just gain some cool insights on you know how to cook food from your your memories and your head as well and not just from a recipe book yeah well, that's awesome, brother. You're doing fantastic work. Um, I'd highly recommend that everyone checks out Everybody Eats. Go and check it out on online, on IG, and get into the restaurant. They should. Yeah, have feed a good bellies meal. and not bins, eh? That's what they need to do. Ex- exactly. Awesome, oh, brother. No, thank I appreciate you so your much. Time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cliff Dogs Podcasts. Subscribe to the cast at your favorite podcast channel. Check out the articles and member-only content at cliffharvey.com. And if you're interested in studying to become a registered health coach, accredited sports nutritionist, or registered clinical nutritionist, head over to the Holistic Performance Institute at holisticperformance.institute. Thank you.